Amen. Well, good singing, church, and good morning again, and God bless you guys. Thank you for being here this morning on this Mother's Day, and if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Peter chapter 4, and if you don't have a Bible with you, that's all right. You can look on the screens with us, but we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to cover all of chapter 4 today. We're going to speed right along, and uh, we're only a couple of weeks away from ending our series called Exiles. We have been looking at the letter that Peter wrote to the church scattered across Asia Minor uh, back in the first century uh, when he was writing to encourage them as Christians living in a non-Christian world, in a non-Christian society and culture, to keep persevering, to press on, and to live for the glory of God. And that's what we're looking at in this series called Exiles in First Peter. So before we dig into that, uh, let me pray for us and pray that the Lord would use his word truly to speak to our hearts this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are here to worship you. And I pray, Lord, that your word would speak to our hearts. And that whatever it is that we need to know as individuals today, you would convict us and encourage us. Lord, whatever it is we need to know corporately as a church today, that you would convict us and encourage us. And let us leave here knowing your glory, knowing your name better than when we walked in. And it's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, I'm always hesitant to give a movie spoiler in any of my sermons, uh, but I'm about to give you one. But it's about Lord of the Rings. And let's just be honest, all right? If you haven't seen it by now, right? I mean, nobody in here was planning on going home and watching Lord of the Rings tonight, right? All right? Uh, Or reading the books tonight. Well, in the movie, uh, or in the book as well, in Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, Frodo is the main character, and he's on this quest to destroy this all-powerful evil ring, okay? And so he is very determined at first, right? He, he knows that he must destroy evil by destroying this ring. He's very determined, but along the way, he faces great challenges and great difficulties as he makes his journey along with his best friend, Samwise Gamgee. They're walking and, and traveling through Middle-earth to destroy this ring. And at one point, He feels like just completely giving up. He is weary. He is tired. And he doesn't know if he even wants to continue, if it's even worth it. But his friend and travel companion, Samwise Gamgee, tells him this. He says, it's like the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad has happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it'll shine out the clearer. I know now folks in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. That there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo. And it's worth fighting for. As the Apostle Peter nears the end of his letter, he is reminding us that there is some good in this world and it's worth living for. He's reminding us that there is a good creator who is faithful and true and he is worth suffering for. He is worth, if need be, dying for. I think this passage today speaks to our hearts as those who are weary, as those who are tired on this journey 
of the Christian life and, and living in a world with interpersonal relationships and society at large that are constantly speaking against us and what we believe and challenging our faith and challenging us to give in or give up. But I think this passage speaks to us as those who are tired and weary, even in the struggle of the Christian life, to know that there is something good worth living for, that all of this is worth it. And I think that's what Peter, as he nears the end of his letter, is communicating to us today in chapter 4. And so I see here three questions. I think there's three questions that Christian exiles that we need to ask ourselves to determine and to gauge and to really form a diagnostic tool. Are we living truly for the glory of God? Is He worth living for? So we have to ask these three questions. Number one concerns our purpose. What am I really living for? That's the question we all must ask if we want to know the purpose of our lives. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, the first part of verse 1, Peter says this. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. With the same way of thinking. You see, Peter is building on what he said at the end of chapter 3, verse 18, that we covered last week. Right? What did he say? He said in verse 18, you can look back, he said, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. So here we see the whole purpose of Jesus Christ coming to earth. He was God in heaven, but gave that title, or gave that uh, privilege, I should say, gave that privilege up and came to earth as fully God and fully man. That was His purpose. His number one priority was to bring glory to God the Father. And the best possible way to do that was by bringing sinners to God. Jesus came to reconcile a sinful people, humanity, right? He came to reconcile humanity with their Creator and show the world what the heart of God the Father is really like. And so how did He do that? Well, you know, the greatest display of the heart of God is on the cross. Think about it. On the cross, what do we see? We see the most perfect and the best display of God's wrath. In other words, His holiness that He hates sin and He hates evil and He is against it. We see that displayed on the cross. But at the same time, we see the love and the grace of God displayed on the cross. Do you see that? There is nothing in this world that shows us such a paradox and such a truth as the cross of Christ. The wrath of God and the love of God. The wrath of God taken on by Jesus that should have been poured out on us. And the love of God given to us. So only through suffering in our place does Jesus bring people to God. And only on the cross do we see the full picture of God's heart and His character. But this is what Peter's saying to us now in chapter 4. Jesus did all of that. He lived His life on this earth for that purpose. To bring sinners to God. And to glorify God in that process and show the world His true heart. Jesus had this singular focus. He had this primary and sole purpose in His life. 
And it determined everything he did. It determined his priorities, the way he spoke to others. It determined the way he treated others and the way he engaged in different relationships with people. He was fully committed to living his whole life for that single purpose, for the will of God, not for any selfish reason or motivation. So as people who claim to follow Jesus, right? That's what we call ourselves. We call ourselves Christians, those who follow Christ. We call ourselves Jesus followers as those who say, oh, I'm walking in his footsteps. I want to be like Jesus. I want to be more like him. I don't want to live like him. Well, then if we're going to say yes, if you're going to say yes to Jesus, then you have to say yes to the way he actually lived. And so now what does Peter tell us? Look again in verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, arm yourselves then. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking as Christ. And think about the depth of this statement. Don't glaze over this. We claim to be the people of God. But are we really following Him? Are we really, truly living for Him above all the other things that keep us busy in this world? Are we being driven by His glory and His grace and His truth? And what really shapes the way we think? What determines how we spend our money? What determines our decision-making? See, these are the questions we must ask. If we claim to follow the Lord of all creation, Jesus Christ Himself, does our lives truly back that statement up? As we're about to see, there will be clear evidence at some point in your life if you're really living for the will of God or for your own purposes. Let's continue on though. 1 Peter chapter 4, the end of verse 1, Peter says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So Peter tells us here that if you're facing any kind of pushback for living out your Christian beliefs in your interpersonal relationships or at work or, or wherever in your family, then that is evidence that you are living truly for the will of God. Because otherwise, right? Otherwise, life would be a little easy or easier. Life would be easier if you were just following the way of the world, if you were following your human passions, Peter says, which brings us to the next point. So number one, we have to think about our purpose. Am I really living for the will of God in my life? Well, here's the diagnostic. You got to look at this, your practice, how you actually live your life. And we have to ask ourselves this question, am I living in obedience to God's word? This is going to be the primary marker, right? To determine, well, am I really living for something greater or am I just living for myself? What drives my decision making? What drives my life? Peter says, well, are you living in obedience to God's word? That, that's the telltale sign, right? So how someone lives reveals what they're really living for. Look at what he says in chapter, or verse 2. He says, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh. In other words, someone who's truly following the Lord and living for the will of God, the rest of their time on this earth, they're no longer, he says, no longer living for the human passions of their old life, but now for the will of God. So to help us better understand the result of what a heart truly changed by God's grace looks like, Peter shows the differences in lifestyles between a non-Christian and a Christian. So these next few verses, 
Peter is contrasting, right? He is showing the differences between what a non-Christian would say and do and think and live versus someone who actually is living for the will of God. So the first thing we see here are unbelievers. Peter describes briefly and succinctly a summarization of their lifestyle, that they are slaves to their appetites. Someone who does not have the Holy Spirit of God living in them that does not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is only able to live as a slave to their own appetites. And here's what Peter says, verse 3. He says, for the time that is past, right? So your old life, Christians. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles, or that's the word he uses for unbelievers, want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So Peter's saying, if you're not, if you're not living for the will of God, if, if that is not your sole purpose in life, you're living for something. We, we got to believe that about humanity. Every single human being on this earth is living for something. I was having a conversation with someone just yesterday of another faith, not a believer, not a Christian. And he and I agreed that essentially all people are looking for the same thing. All people are looking for happiness. The issue is we're all going about finding it in so many different ways. You see, everybody's living for something. So without Christ redirecting, redirecting our heart's desires, if we do not have Christ in us, if we do not follow Jesus, we are left to ourselves as slaves to our own human appetites. And when I say appetites, I mean our idolatrous loves, our idolatrous desires to be respected for approval, for acceptance, for love, for power, for control. And all those things manifest themselves in our behaviors in different ways. You see, that's how sin works. It eats away at you, but never satisfies. Here's another spoiler, okay? So I used to watch the TV show, The Walking Dead. I don't recommend it necessarily. <laughs> and I quit watching it because it just got bad. But the Walking Dead on that show, all right, any zombie lovers out there, okay, what do they do, right? They just, they're just always hungry. They're dead. They can't even think for themselves, but they're always trying to fill that appetite, but nothing satisfies. So they are dead to their senses, yet slave to their appetites. And I think that that's exactly how we were before we knew Christ. In fact, Paul said in Ephesians 2 that we were dead spiritually dead in our trespasses and our sins. We didn't realize the goodness of God's design. We didn't realize the goodness of His grace. We thought that, the, that happiness and fulfillment and joy could be found in the things that God created and not the Creator Himself. And so we slave to those things. We, we work hard for those things and we look to those things to bring us joy and happiness and ultimately our identity, our appetites, our desires, they control us because we're looking for that fulfillment. And so addictive patterns begin to form. That's really the root of all addiction. It's thinking that you need this to bring you that happiness and you're willing at any cost to get it. But notice Peter says, the time that is past suffices for living like that, Christian. In other words, that's your old life without Christ, but now you've been changed. 
You've been changed by God's grace and His power and His death and resurrection that's been credited to your life. You're a different person. You're a new creature in Christ. And that brings us to the second half of this point, right? If you want to know, are you really living for something greater in this world? Are you really living for the will of God? Well, then believers, here's the clear evidence. Unbelievers, they are slaves to their appetites, but us believers, us Jesus followers, we have to obey God's word no matter the cost. We have to seek and strive to be obedient to what the Lord has told us about the world He's created and His design for us. Listen, it's not perfection. I want to make that very clear. A lot of people have this misunderstanding that you have to clean your life up before you come to church. And that's what keeps a lot of people away. They say, well, my life's a mess right now. I can't go to church. And I would look at you and say, that's perfect. Because all of our lives are a mess. My life's a mess in many ways. Your life is a mess in many ways. There's not a single person in here whose life isn't a mess. It's because we're all sinful creatures in our flesh. But the body of Christ, the people of God, have the Holy Spirit living inside them, and so we're living for a different purpose. You see, it's not perfection, it's redirection. It's redirection. This redirection is defined by what in the life of a believer? Of a believer? Obedience. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like repentance. Continual repenting of sins in our life. So when we do make a mistake, what do we do? We turn away from it. We don't dive deeper into it and become addicted. We turn away. It looks like resisting sin, knowing that, man, we're going to slip, we're going to make mistakes, we're going to fall sometimes, but ultimately is our heart's desire to resist the power of sin and to turn to the power of Christ. Verse 4, Peter says this, as believers are being obedient to the will of God and not living in that past life, he says this, verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised your old friends, your old pals, your family members, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. In other words, they speak evil against you. They hate on you. They make fun of you. They poke fun. You see, some people are going to be genuinely surprised when you tell them that you can't do what they're doing they're going to be genuinely surprised when you gently and respectfully abstain from the practice that they're doing or whatever it may be. Because, see, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you live and work in places where the people around you are not, clearly not, living for the will of God. Some of you college students and high school students, you see this on a daily basis. And so you're having to repent, you're having to resist, you're having to, to think consciously about what obeying the will of God looks like in these very challenging peer pressure type situations. So some of us, we, we came to know the Lord as an adult and you have, you've had to truly turn away from those sinful desires. And that's probably been very difficult. You may have even lost friends because of that. But for example, as challenging this is, I think that's why Peter mentions the list of sins that he does in verse 3, right? The, the things that control us, those human appetites. And I think, as we see in verse 3, one of the biggest challenges, and, and, and we can't just overlook this because I think this is why Peter's bringing it out. It was an issue in the first century. It's a huge issue today. One of the biggest challenges for Christians in today's world is going to be living according to God's design for sex. You see, 
That's why Peter lists this in in verse 3. It was such a challenge then. It is absolutely a challenge now. We don't talk about that enough in the church. You see, God created sex as a gift to be enjoyed between a husband and a wife within the good and proper boundaries of a marriage. And an intimate, and it's ultimately an intimate picture of Christ being joined together forever with His bride, His church. You see, the the Christian sexual ethic tells us that it's all about the giving of oneself. And you give and and you make yourself vulnerable to someone who loves you in a loving relationship, in a safe, proper relationship. But for the unbelieving world who are only slaves to their desires and their appetites, God's design for this makes no matter to them. It's all about taking what you can get and not giving. It's all about someone else in that relationship giving you what you think you need to be happy. Again, it's just a slave to an appetite is all it is. And so as soon as that person doesn't deliver, you cut off the relationship and you go to the next person. And so you go from relationship to relationship to relationship. So Christians, I mean, that's America today, right? So Christians living in this kind of society, especially our younger people and our people in their college years and high school years and and all the temptations around them, Christians living for this higher purpose we say we're living for, in obedience to God's Word and His will for your life. Listen, you are going to have to be decisive and you're going to have to be bold in this area. When all of your friends are sleeping around, or all of your other friends are living with their boyfriends and girlfriends, Christian, you have to say no to that. You have to stand firm on what God has designed, no matter the cost. Even if your friends poke fun of you, even if you have to break up with your boyfriend or break up with your girlfriend. You see, we believe Christ. We believe Christ brings all the joy and fulfillment and acceptance and love you could ever want or need into your heart. Christians, our worldview says this, that God Himself, He is our most cherished possession. And there's no romantic relationship that could ever give us ultimately what God has given us. And that His love for us shapes us. And it shapes and and controls the decisions we make. And so the world, the world takes all kinds of God's good gifts He's given us, but they twist them and they distort them and they use them for only selfish motives. And do they satisfy? Maybe for a little while. But there's always consequences. There's always consequences for living outside of God's will for our lives. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man but its end is the way to death. You see, there will be consequences when we live outside of God's boundaries that He designed. There will be relational pain. There will be psychological challenges that you probably will endure for years. There will be emotional hurt. There will be rejection. There will be fear. There will be anxiety. But Jesus' followers, Christians, actually get to enjoy God's gifts fully as they were designed while loving others selflessly with no reservations. Isn't that great? With no fear of rejection? With no consequences? Ultimately bringing glory to God Himself. But Peter tells us this is not popular. This isn't popular. 
And so what about those people who are going to make fun of you? What about those people who are going to pressure you to give in? What about those people who are going to look at you and say, that is so outdated, man. Can't believe you're following a book that was written 2,000 years ago. Well, here's what Peter has to say. Look at verse 5 and 6. He says, But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. In other words, Peter is assuring Christians, listen, the people who are giving you a hard time, God's going to judge all people. God is going to judge Christians and non-Christians alike. But you see, for the Christian... For the Christian who endures faithfully to the end, your salvation, your salvation will be made complete at the judgment of God. So we have nothing to fear at the judgment of God when we stand before him at the end of our lives or when he returns. So yes, physical death will come to us all, Peter says, but our spiritual life will be ours forever. So with that end of time in mind, Peter continues talking about what characterizes the lifestyle of believers. Notice it's the opposite of the kind of lifestyle he described of unbelievers in verse 3. He continues on. See, he's still contrasting the life of a believer with a non-believer. Here's what he says, verses 7 through 11. With that end of time in mind, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, Christians, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's buried grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything... In all of these ways that we're loving one another and serving one another, Peter says, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see, living this way in the present, living this way now, brings glory to the one who is establishing his dominion, as Peter says there in verse 11. Christ is establishing his rule and his reign. He will rule and he will reign for all eternity. And he's in the process of establishing that. But living this way, in this kind of obedience to his word now, is pointing the world and the people we live around and live with and work with, it's pointing them to the dominion, the rule and reign of Christ to come. Living obediently now in the decisions you make in this life right now matters. It matters because it points the unbelievers in your life to this greater purpose that you're living for, to the good in this world that you're living for that points to the good creator. That one day in the future, the will of God you're living for now will finally be realized and brought to fruition. And so we have to ask, man, is this, is this how I'm living now? Do we think of our lives this way? Do you think your life is that important? Because I'm here to tell you that it absolutely is. It doesn't matter what stage of life you're in. It doesn't matter where you work or whether you work at all. It doesn't matter. 
What matters is that our lives matter because we were created and transformed by the gospel to live for the glory of God and to show others of a world to come. That this world is not all there is. As we live like this, showing a world that we're living for something more than just our appetites. As we show them this higher way, this better way for this greater purpose, it's not going to come easy. And we're going to be made fun of. We're going to be ridiculed. And so I think that's why Peter says what he does in verse 12 through 19. He talks about our perspective. As we're living this way and seeking to be obedient, we're going to have to see God's goodness as we're made fun of, as we're ridiculed, as we're challenged, as we feel the pressure and the weight of the world or the pressure and the weight of your own spouse who's unbelieving or your own supervisor who's unbelieving. Wherever that weight is coming from, Peter says, do we see God's goodness in those moments? Do we see how he's using those things for good? Look what Peter says in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised, right? It's all about perspective. He says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You see, being so keenly aware of the next life, we should not be surprised at the malfunction of this one. So suffering and difficulties and adversity are going to come naturally in this world as we live for the next. He continues on, verse 13 and 14, he says, but rejoice. Again, it's all about perspective, right? Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. See, Peter's saying that our perspective should be so firm, it should be so settled that we can see the good even in the midst of our suffering. The suffering itself is not good. Jesus never gloried or, or uh, rejoiced in the suffering itself. He wept over suffering. But in the midst of our challenges, in the midst of the weight and the pressure we feel, we can still have a joyful perspective knowing that you know what? This decision I have to make to break up with my boyfriend or this decision that I have to make to not join in with the guys at work and the water cooler talk, this decision I have to make about whether or not I'm actually going to say godly things to my family members who get on my nerves, right? These decisions that we're challenged with and that we face almost every day, as we feel the weight and the pressure of those moments, still for the Christian, for the believer, there is something inside of us saying, yes, but it's worth it. And there's a good and faithful God who has his hand on you in that time. So when the insults come, that proves that we're living. It, it proves, right? When, when the insults come, it, it proves that you are living in obedience and that God is with us. Look what Peter says in verses 15 through 18. 
He talks about how we Christians, we're going to be held to a higher standard. He says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler, right? That's not the way of, of Christ. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? What is Peter saying here? He's saying, listen, believers, we are held to a higher standard. We are. We are held to a higher standard. And the wicked will receive their just judgment. But then Peter closes this part of the letter with such a beautiful summary statement. I love verse 19. Look what he says. He says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I want to read that again. It's almost poetic. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I love that Peter describes God as a faithful creator. What a beautiful way to describe our God. He's a creator. He designed the world and he designed us to function in a certain way so that ultimately we would find our joy and our hope in him and him alone. But he's not just a creator. He's also a faithful God. He's a faithful father who gave his son's life so that we could turn away from those appetites that controlled us and so that we would ultimately find our joy and our hope and all the love and acceptance and approval we could ever need in Christ and Christ alone. He is a faithful creator. One day, he's going to wipe every tear from every eye. And everything that is sad, everything that's sad in your life right now will be made untrue. Everything that is wrong in this world will be made right. Because our faithful creator, who suffered and died for us, has brought us to himself. So yes, there is good in this world. But the true good in this world is the good and faithful creator himself. Jesus Christ, who died and bled for you, who loves you more than you love yourself. So that good I believe 100% without a doubt, as Peter tells us, it's worth living for. If you've never turned to Christ to be your Lord and Savior, if you're here today and you've never turned to Jesus truly to be that fulfillment, to be that joy, you can follow Him today. You can turn away from those appetites that are controlling your life. 
Some of you, if you're really honest, maybe you've even grown up in church, but the truth is those appetites, right? Those, those sinful human passions, as Peter describes them, they are truly controlling you. They've got a grip on your life. They have a stronghold over you. And you know, if you're honest with yourself, that you're a slave to them. And your heart is captivated by those things and not by God himself. And I want you to know today that you can turn. Because there's a faithful creator with his arms wide open who says, come to me, those who are tired, those who are weary. I'll give you rest. And I'll give you life. Life to the fullest. For some of you Christians here today, I just have a simple question. Are you living in obedience to God's word? Are you living in obedience to God's word? And is your life right now defined by continual repentance and resisting? Repentance and resisting. Repenting and resisting. Would that mark your life? Or are you in a dark place? Maybe you're in a dark place right now where your sinful appetites are temporarily controlling you and you need to break free from that. You need to turn back to the gospel you know and believe. Turn back to the Savior you know and love. Confess that sin to Him today, right now. He will forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Would you pray with me? Let's confess our sins to God. Let's confess where we are giving in instead of pressing on. Let's confess where we're living for something besides the Lord himself. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your grace. And we thank you that you care enough about us, faithful creator, to change our hearts, to change our heart's desires. And Lord, if we know you, if we truly know you, we know that our heart's desire is to love and please and honor you, to live obediently to your good design you've given us that is good for us and brings you glory and is a faithful witness to the world. We know that's where we should be. But Lord, for some people here today, it seems like they're taking one step forward and two steps back always. God, I pray that they would see your grace and your forgiveness right now. That they would confess whatever idolatry is in their heart, whatever they are looking to, to give them that peace and that rest that only you can give. Lord, may they confess that now to you. May you grant them the forgiveness that you have died and bled for, that you have purchased May their souls feel free in this moment. Lord, I pray that you would break the chains of bondage and enslavement and addiction. Whatever stronghold is over any believer here today or unbeliever, may we both turn to your grace, turn to your life and goodness as the only way of the good life on this earth. So God, let your grace, by the power of your Holy Spirit, reign supreme in our hearts right now. 
And we turn to you and you alone. Thank you, God, for being a faithful creator who loves us so. We trust you. Lord, let us entrust our souls to your good and loving care. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.